Hello and welcome from Good Shepherd Church of Camarillo. We're so glad you're with us. Here's today's message. I want to say a special welcome to Irene. She was so excited to be here this morning. Let's welcome Irene back. She was, she came to me excitedly. She said, Mary brought me here this morning. And so thank you, Mary, for, for uh, getting Irene here. So James chapter 5, we're, we're coming to the end of our study. And in this study, as we've talked about, we've been convicted. We've been very much challenged uh, throughout the book of James. We've been encouraged in just the commands that God gives us here. Um, so quick quiz question. Who remembers how many verses in the book of James. How many verses altogether? There's five chapters, a short book. How many verses? We talked about this a couple weeks ago. 108. Wow, good memory, Amanda. That's, that's amazing. Okay, so 108 verses. It's, it's not, a, not a long book, but who remembers then how many of those 108 verses, how many commands or references to commands throughout the book of James in those five chapters? Wow, good job, Jeff. 60, all right. Thank you for paying attention. So 108 verses, 60 commands. Wow, that is a lot to live up to, isn't it? And as believers in Jesus, I'm thankful that we live under God's grace. Because when you just think of, you know, five chapters in the Bible and 60 commands or some kind of implication of a command of a right way to live or a wrong way to live. We know that we're going to mess up. We know that we're going to make mistakes. We know, you know, at the same time, we're grateful that those commands are there because it shows us the right way, right? But I am so grateful that we live under God's grace as forgiven, redeemed children of God, daily living under the grace of God. But as we do, we also live under the guidance of the Holy Spirit and we live under the direction of God's word to guide us into what's right and to also at the same time avoid what's wrong. Ultimately, so that we can experience God's best for us on this earth. And that's true in our individual lives as believers, just in our own personal relationship with God, our relationships with others, is that God in, God's commands are, are what's best for us, of how he intends for us to live. But that's also true in Christian community. And God has instructions for the church. He has instructions for Christian community. And I'm afraid, and you might agree with me, that within the church community, now I'm not just talking about Good Shepherd, I'm not just talking about our local church community, but the church community by and large, we often miss out on the fullness of what God wants to give us in the church and in community with other believers. Because when you think about it, you know, God has spelled things out, uh, you know, just for life as believers and living in community with one another. And we know that we, we fall short of it. 
We don't experience the fullness of what God wants to give us in community with other believers. And as we come to the end of the book of James, what I want us to see today is the fullness of Christian community. And we're going to be looking at six things here, six things in this text, and I'm calling them pillars, six pillars for experiencing the fullness of Christian community. We see them right here in James 5, 12 through 20. So I'm going to read this our text, and I want you to pay attention to see if you can pick out what these six pillars are. We're going to spell them out as we go through here. So James 5, starting at verse 12, it says, But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another And pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings, us, brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. And so, so much packed up here, and it's kind of like James is like saying his final words here. He's like, oh, all these other things that you need to know about living in community with one another. And so, what are these six pillars that I'm talking about. Six pillars for experiencing the fullness of Christian community. The first one is this, is a truthful community. Look at verse 12. Verse 12 is actually a very commonly quoted verse. Many people, even in the secular world, will reference this verse. It says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. And I want us to understand what, what this is really getting at here. This isn't so much about whether to say yes to something or whether to de- say no to something, you know, like in decision-making or just what you can commit to. It's talking really about being truthful about what we say so that what we do matches up with what we say. It's really not so much about saying yes or no to something. It's about the way that we live. It's about our actions speaking for our character. I want you to take a resume, for example. How many of you have ever written a resume before? Most of you probably. And if kids, listen up because you'll have to write a resume someday. And um, I think about a resume And I remember when I first wrote a resume, uh, you know, what you're doing is you're putting your best foot forward, aren't you? You're writing down, you know, kind of the best of who you are, right? You know, your, your experience and what makes you qualified for the job. 
And I remember writing, you know, different character qualities, uh, and, and I don't remember what all they were, but I wanted people to know that, think that I'm reliable, I'm dependable, I have integrity, you know, I tell the truth, all these things, I'm, I'm saying all these, all these good things, right? But how are they going to actually know that? How are they going to be able to look at the resume and just know, like, oh, I believe this person. <laughs> That's why we ask for references, right? You know, when we're going to hire someone and, um, you, you know, we, we ask for references, we want to find out from other people, you know, is, is what this person is saying about themselves, is, is it true? And, you know, what type of worker are they? All those things. But really, the true test comes not so much in what the references say, but how you end up working, right? And, and, you know, are those things that you say, do they actually match up on the job? You know, when, when push comes to shove and you're in the throes of day-to-day -day work, are you a person of character? Are you, do you show up for work? Are you reliable? Are you dependable? As believers, how does this apply to us of living truthful lives living in a truthful community. As believers, we shouldn't have to verbally try to convince people to trust us. Have you ever had someone in your life that is, you know, trying to convince you verbally that you should trust them? Do you end up trusting them? You know, the more that they try to convince you, the less you believe, right? Because maybe their character doesn't really match up with what they're saying, or you just maybe know from their track record that they can't be trusted. And as believers, our track record should speak for us. What we speak should match how we live. And that's partially why James says earlier in the book, remember what he says? Be quick to what? Quick to listen. Slow to what? Speak, right? Quick to listen and slow to speak. And I think this is also what ties in with letting our yes be yes and letting our no be no, is that we take the time and the opportunity to really think through, you know, what can I say yes to? What can I, or what should I maybe say no to? And that's where the decision-making thing comes into play. And I think this is very important in the church because we can easily have a problem sometimes saying no. Because we don't want to disappoint people. We want to tell people what they want to hear. And our, our yes <laughs> should stand as a yes. Our no should stand as a no. It should match in what we do and what we even what we even commit to. And I've, I've even commended some people in our church lately, um, recently, that maybe initially said, yeah, I can do that, or I can take that on. And then maybe the next day, rethinking it, they say, you know what? I realize that I committed too soon. I should have given some more thought to this. And I've commended that. I've said, thank you. Thank you for taking the time to think through that. And maybe their initial thought was like, you know what? I don't really want to do that. And is it better to just go through with it and do it and burn yourself out or, you know, do it with, with a bad attitude rather than just being honest and saying, you know what? I can't commit to that right now. Let 
your yes be matched by your actions and your attitude and let your no be matched by your actions and your attitude because what we tend to want to do is tell people what they want to hear. And so first, a truthful community that we, yes, what what we commit to, what we say yes to, what we say about ourselves matches up with what we do, matches up with our actions. The second pillar is a prayerful community. And what I want to emphasize with this is that we are a community full of prayer, that we are not just a praying type of people. You know, that I'm not just a praying man, one who does pray, but that we are a community that is marked by prayer. And in this passage, we see several instructions and ways in which to pray. Verse 13 says, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Verse 14, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the emphasis here is that we are actually taking action in our prayer. Prayer in Christian community involves action. And prayer also, really when you think about it, is a two-way street in Christian community because there's the person that is in need of prayer making the need known, which actually can be difficult at times. It can be a very humbling thing to admit that we need prayer, and it can be a very humbling thing to ask for prayer. It's not always easy. And so there's that one side of the street of you know, making the need known, but then there's the other side of the street. There's an action involved in prayer, actually praying for the person. And maybe that might involve calling, picking up the phone and calling a person, praying for them over the phone. Maybe it's gathering, maybe the elders around the person who is sick and and just taking the action of speaking, lifting up your voice in prayer, or just gathering with two or three other believers. It involves action. It involves taking a step. This past year, there's been several times on Thursday mornings that I've gathered with, with Greg and Tony. And, you know, sometimes our big action that we're taking in prayer is getting up early <laughs> and getting in the car and driving to meet with one another. And yes, the prayer itself involves action, but it involves action to just take that step to get together to do that. And that's part of what James is getting at here is taking the step of action toward a prayer. And I believe that intentionally gathering for prayer with another believer is the most powerful thing that believers can do together. Because what did Jesus say? He said, wherever two or more are gathered together in my name, I am there with them. That is powerful. You know, we can get together for fellowship, which is amazing. We can get together for study. But when we get together to seek the face of the Lord and to call upon him, to acknowledge and call upon his power and to sit in his presence together with other believers, it is the most powerful thing that believers can do together. And then there's this thing here. He, he talks about um, the anointing the person uh, with oil, this can be confusing. This has been confusing for believers for a long time, and it's, it's not exactly clear from this passage how we should apply this. Some scholars have wondered if maybe this oil was for medicinal purposes, 
It was common in those days, you know, that, that oil was used as a balm or of healing of some sort, but normally that wouldn't be in the job description of church leaders to go, you know, use medicinal oil on someone. And it's quite possible that this is just meant to be symbolic. It's common in other parts of scripture. Maybe you can think of examples to see anointing with oil symbolizing setting someone or something apart for a particular purpose. And so understanding it this way, we realize that the oil itself doesn't have some kind of miraculous special healing power to it. But it can be used as something physical to symbolize setting someone apart for a special purpose or special attention to prayer. And so is it necessary that, you know, every time someone's in need that they're anointed with oil? No, it is not necessary. Is it something that can be done for the purpose of bringing special attention to the act of prayer? Is it? Yes, it is. And most important of all is that this anointing is done in the name of the Lord, which is how we ought to do all things, right? It was the Apostle Paul that said, whatever we do, whether in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And so it's a special act of bringing this person before the Lord. And the overall point in James's words here is that we are praying in a variety of ways and that we are a community that is filled with all types of prayer and that we take those steps of action toward praying for one another. So that's the second thing. The third thing, and we're going to move through this pretty quickly here in this third part, but a joyful community. Not that it's, not that we want to skip over joy or go over it too fast, but, but a joyful community. We don't only share burdens. We shouldn't forget the joy and the celebrations. Look at verse 13. Even in talking about prayer and hardships, verse 13, it says, is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. And that's the beauty of Christian community, that we can share our burdens and needs but that we can also give praise. And that doesn't just have to be when things are going great. You know, sometimes we can think of it that way that, you know, yeah, am I coming today? Do I just have needs and burdens? And that's, that's about all. Or am I also coming, even if I have needs and burdens, am I finding reason to praise as well? And there was a person I I don't want to say her name, but a person I talked to a couple weeks ago that called and had need and was honestly in a lot of pain as I was talking to this person over the phone. And we talked and we prayed and talked some more, and it was incredible for this person as this conversation went on. This person started to name all the things that she was grateful for, all the ways that the Lord had blessed her, and by the end of the conversation, she was, just, she was just praising the Lord over the phone. And so what started out as talking about the pain and asking for her ended, ended in praise. It was incredible. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise even in the hardest of times. And so a joyful community, joy that can't be taken away even in difficult times, even in hardships. Number four, 
and this one is a little bit of a stretch as far as the wording, but a confessionful community. I couldn't find a good word for this, so I kind of made this up. A confessionful community. Listen to what it says in verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. And you know what? This is probably one of the verses that Satan hates the most. Satan wants us to be silent about our sins. He wants us to keep our sins secret. But James says here that we find healing when we confess our sins. And there's a couple different ways this happens. Sometimes it's confessing our fault to another person. You know, maybe a way that we've hurt someone or someone who's taken offense at us, someone that we have wronged and we go to them and we admit that and we apologize and we ask for forgiveness and then forgiveness is granted and, and there is a miraculous healing that takes place. God is supernaturally at work in that to provide healing through the power of Christ. But there's another way too if we're struggling with something, struggling with a sin, and, and we admit it openly with another Christian or, or maybe an accountability group, when we confess sin to each other, something miraculous also happens. There is a miraculous healing that takes place in that, as it, James points out here. And I want to share a quote from a book um, by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. It's called Life Together. It's a short book, but it is a profound book, and it's very deep. Highly recommend this book, Life Together by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And in this book, he so profoundly talks about the power of confessing our sins in Christian community. And the, this is, I, I'm just, just a disclaimer, this is kind of a long quote here, but Hear these words and just let these sink in. He says, In confession, the breakthrough to community takes place. Sin demands to have a man by himself. It withdraws him from the community. The more isolated a person is, the more destructive will be the power of sin over him, and the more deeply he becomes involved in it. The more disastrous is his isolation. Sin wants to remain unknown. It shuns the light. In the darkness of the unexpressed, it poisons the whole being of a person. This can happen even in the midst of a pious community. In confession, the light of the gospel breaks into the darkness and seclusion of the heart. The sin must be brought to light. The unexpressed must be openly spoken and acknowledged, all that is secret and hidden is made manifest. It is a hard struggle until the sin is openly admitted. But here's what happens. But God breaks gates of brass and bars of iron. He says, since the confession of sin is made in the presence of a Christian brother, the last stronghold of self-justification is abandoned. Because sometimes we hold on to that, of why we might be justified. But then we let it go. The sinner surrenders. He gives up all his evil. He gives his heart to God, and he finds the forgiveness of all his sin in the fellowship of Jesus Christ, first and foremost, but also in the presence of his brother. It says, the expressed, acknowledged sin has lost all its power. And that's exactly what James is talking about here. Now, can you simply confess your sin to God and receive forgiveness? 
Just between you and God? Yes. But God also gives us the gift of community in which we can further experience his healing and his mercy as we live a, in a confessionful community. A community in which we are confessing sin to God, but also at times and wherever needed to confess to one another that we may be healed. Number five, two more. A faithful community. And what I mean by this is not just that we're faithful and steadfast and continue on, but a community that is full of faith. It says here in verse 16, the second half, it says the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And we're pointed here to the example of Elijah. Look at verse 17. This is so beautiful. It says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Probably heard people say before, be careful what you pray for, right? Imagine from a, if you prayed that prayer, God, I pray that it would not rain for three years and six months. <laughs> really, when you think about that, Elijah praying that prayer, it required a lot of faith. Not only just in the miracle that God would prevent the rain, but that God would continue to provide in that. I don't know how I would do that. <laughs> okay, Lord, you want me to pray for this, you know, three and a half years without rain, and in those days, it was a much bigger deal, you know, just as far as how they were going to get their produce and, and all of that. Famine, drought, you knew what was coming. That prayer took great faith. And it took Elijah believing that God has a greater purpose. And then look at verse 18. It says, then he prayed again. And heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. And it can be easy, kind of like we talked about last week in the story of Job. You know, we can fast forward quick to the end. And for Elijah, you know, we can fast forward. Well, then he prayed again, and, and then it rained. But think about the faith that required to know, okay, Lord, I'm going to pray for this, and I'm just going to trust that you're going to continue to provide even in the time of darkness, even in the time of scarcity, even in the time of drought. The prayer of a righteous person, it says, has great power. Faith-filled power. And here's the key to faith-filled righteous prayer is that first and foremost, we pray in God's name for his will to be done. What is it that we pray in the Lord's Prayer? the very beginning, your kingdom come, what is it? Your will be done. And when we pray that, before we bring our other needs or our other desires or other wishes before the Lord, we are praying, God, I want what you want. I'm going to bring all these things to you, God, but first and foremost, I want your will to be done. And that takes great faith. And as a community of believers, we can continue in that faith together and, and continue to pray that prayer boldly. God, may your will be done, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Last, finally, the last pillar is a merciful community, a, a community that is full of mercy. 
I find it interesting how James closes his book here. Most, you know, most of Paul's letter closed with some beautiful doxology or benediction or blessing to God's people. But James closes here with an exhortation to remain faithful and believing and to hold on to the truth. Listen again to verse 19 and 20. He says, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. I want you to notice in particular what it says there. He's talking about those that have wandered from the truth. And the reality is that we increasingly live in a culture that hates the truth, that rejects the truth. We're facing constant pressure to give in and, and to be tolerant of just about anything, to abandon the truth. And the scripture speaks to this, talks about the people in our day exchanging God's truth for a lie. And I think it's so fitting even today that, that James ends on this exhortation. Isn't it amazing in God's word that what was written 2,000 years ago is like, you know, if you read this for the first time, you could have thought that it was written yesterday or today. It's so relevant to us that we guard ourselves from drifting from the truth, but also that we take it upon ourselves to, like James talks about here, to seek out Christians who have strayed from the truth. The lies of our culture are strong. The, the lies about marriage, about gender, about a universalist faith, that it doesn't matter what your religion is, all roads lead to heaven, all these lies are being or eventually will be exposed because lies do not stand. The truth of God is what stands and prevails. And sadly, many, even in the Christian church, have wandered or continue to wander from the truth. But my question, my challenge this morning as we think about that, are we seeking them out? Are we seeking out those that have wandered or are wandering? Are you willing also, are you willing and available to help them come back? The church must be a house full of mercy, a mercyful community. And as we think about this, ponder this, and as we prepare to come forward for communion, we're reminded of the ultimate act of mercy, of what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. And I appreciate what one writer said. This is powerful. Listen to this. The blood of Jesus is unlimited in its ability to wash even the most horrible stains of sin from the soul of one of God's children. And that's true of anyone that comes back to the faith, comes back to the truth as we receive them, as they turn back to the truth and as they receive forgiveness and mercy. But it's also true of each one of us as we come forward this morning What's true is that the blood of Jesus is unlimited in its ability to wash even the most horrible stains of sin from the soul of one of God's children. We all come as God's children this morning. We come forward today as those who have received mercy. We come forward undeserving. We come forward humble. We come admitting our need for the blood of Jesus to wash over us. But you know what else? We also come confidently. We come confident not in ourselves, 
but we come confident in what Jesus has done for us. We come confident in the mercy that we have received from Christ. And because of that, we have this exhortation in Hebrews 4.16. And hear this as we prepare to come forward. Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Aren't you grateful that you can come in confidence today? Confidence not in yourself. You still come humbly, but you come confident in what Christ has done for you on the cross. And so as we prepare to come, we're reminded in thinking of all the different commands God gives us. James is just one of, you know, countless books that have commands that God has spelled out for us, and Jesus has fulfilled every one of them perfectly. He came and fulfilled the law for us. And hear these words. If we examine ourselves as we are called to do, if we examine ourselves, we find nothing in us but sin and death from which we cannot set ourselves free. Therefore, our Lord Jesus Christ has had mercy on us, and has taken on himself our nature, that he might fulfill for us the whole will and law of God, and for our deliverance suffer death and all that we through our sins deserve. And to the end that we should confidently believe this and be strengthened by our faith, he has instituted the holy sacrament of his supper in which he feeds us with his body and gives us to drink of his blood. Therefore, whoever eats of this bread and drinks of this cup Firmly believing the words of Christ dwells in Christ and Christ in him and has eternal life. And we should also do this in remembrance of him, of his death and how he was delivered for our sins and raised for our justification. And with grateful hearts, we should take up our cross and follow him. And according to his commandment, love one another even as he has loved us. For we are all one bread and one body, even as we are partakers of this one bread and drink of this one cup. And we're reminded that our Lord Jesus Christ, in the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had eaten, or when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is given for you, this do in remembrance of me. And in the same manner, he took the cup, and when he had eaten, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. This cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Thank you.